And we're on, man, with uh, Robert Drysdale, the, the writer of Opening the Close Guard and uh, the Rise of Evolution, uh, the Rise and Evolution of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. And he's an ADCC world champion, uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu world champion, and one of the founders of the team known as Cinet in Las Vegas and, uh, and, and Brazil mostly. But uh, yeah, he's there to talk about a lot of stuff. So uh, hope you guys enjoy, man. So, Robert, how are you doing? Good man, thanks for having me back. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Appreciate it. We we we've been talking a lot to uh, try to do this, and then it hasn't fit my schedule, and then it hasn't fit your schedule. So we're like, but I'm I'm flexible, so we do what we can. Yeah, man. Well, I'm happy to be back. Yeah, I appreciate it so much. It's uh, it's awesome. It's awesome, man. Uh, yeah, you're one of the guys that I started to uh, to watch when I first started this. I think it was a white belt. I think that was back in 2000 and. 11 i think so that you were one of the first guys i really started watching and uh got my i uh, remember I, I had your ninth uh, dimension uh, dvd actually oh nice yeah that was I, a minute ago yeah i uh i downloaded it <laughs> so uh but yeah it, it was cool you know you showed a lot of like cool entries here from the dars and, and the dars choke if i don't remember correctly and it was a lot of good stuff that still can be yeah well uh yeah man i'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it yeah, yeah. So it's it's probably old school now for the newer viewers, but for me it was like, holy shit, this is this is gold. Yeah, man. Well, it's uh, you know, I I always teach with uh, you know stuff that I'm working on myself. So you know, I I, I I try to be original when I teach as much as I can. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I also also had the other DVD with them in my uh, science of jujitsu. I think that was his DVD. Yeah. It's also a good one. Yeah. yeah. So 100%, man. Yeah, so what have you been doing lately? How's uh how's the book how, how how's the book going? Well, it's going well, man. We had a our first book that much better than expected. The second book is doing just as well. Probably a little less marketing than I had the first one because I had, you know, I've been on so many podcasts for the first book. Whereas the second one I have uh, I've been on a lot like big fewer podcasts. But it's still selling really well. So they're, they're both moving. Actually, the first one just, the sales just boosted because of the second book, possibly, if people are buying both copies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so I can't complain, man. Like, it's been, um, it's been fortunate. Like, I, you know, when I wrote the first book, I was like, oh, I'll probably sell three, 400 copies in this lifetime. And I think we sold something like 500 copies in the first five days. Mm, so That's awesome. Definitely. Yeah, definitely better than expected. Mm. Um. The, the the second one wasn't a little far behind, but not by a lot. Yeah, maybe like you know, three hundred and fifty copies the first week, you know. So it, it's moving quick. Mm, you yeah, know? and that that that's um, you know it's nice to hear, man. I'm I can't uh, I can't complain, and I I um, I've been fortunate to be able to help tell this story. Yeah, yeah, because the normal story. Yeah, you you, you know the normal story. Uh, Maeda came from Japan and teach jujitsu, but it's like uh, it was not really like that, right? Well, it's, it, it wasn't so much, it's just like there's more to the story than that, right? The Maeda-Carlos connection has been 100% of the story of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And, you know, it's just not the most important aspect of the story. It's more of a curiosity. There was this other guy, this Brazilian guy called Jacinto Ferro, who, who taught Carlos. We know that for a fact. Uh, it's not controversial. Uh, there are other guys who are possibly Carlos' teacher, um, 
but you know these things are just like curiosities in my opinion there's other other aspects of the story that are so much more interesting like like the gracie family man they, they stuck to their narrative man like for for 50 years like no one's paying attention these guys just sticking to their version of events yeah it's almost like they create this religion out of jujitsu like this is how we're gonna do it this is what we're doing this is where we're going mm. and no one's believing them no one's paying attention they didn't have the, the, the recognition that 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 you know the judo had at the time, but they stuck to their narrative, man. It's it's amazing when you think about that. When you compare that to the relationship between Carlos and Maeda, like the, their resilience, you know, in, in face of the rise of judo and karate and all these other martial arts, it's remarkable. Uh-huh. You know, they would stick to something that no one was paying attention to, that no one believed could pan out, but they just stuck to their way of doing things. And at the end, man. They did it. They did. They did BJJ. They did the great uh, the, the the UFC. I mean, it's it's, inc- it's an incredible story. So, my mo has always been like, let's tell the facts as they are. There's no need to embellish anything, or detract, or omit, or aggrandize, or exaggerate. The story is very interesting and fascinating as it is. There's no need to take anyone out, or you know. You put anyone on, you know, make personality cults out of characters that are perfectly human. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I um also saw your podcast with Stephen Casting. That was quite interesting. You talked a lot about uh, oh, Carlson Gracie, like how yeah, how. Imp- that's, a, that's, a, that's that's another very important aspect of the story that no one wants to talk about. Yeah, but it's very important. You know, for example, like this is one thing that we we that wasn't in the first book that, but came in the second. Like I've been looking for that 1975 rule set for since I started this because I the, the rule set is always being a competitor. It's always been very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, and following the rule set, what's interesting about that is you can watch the evolution of their interpretation of what jujitsu was, and you can see it changing over time. So in 1936. It's very influenced by boxing. It still has a one-to-one ratio between takedowns and ground positions. In 54, you see the influence of boxing being removed, but you still see a heavy foot in judo. They have a psychomy, which is like an e-pawn in judo, but they were rewarding mm, um, mm. these guys with uh, with uh, these competitors with one point. Right In 67, you still have the one-to-one ratio. In other words, their orientation towards the ground is not there yet. And this is in 67, and we're still seeing this. And oh, this is crystal clear when you watch guys like Helio fight. Like, he's not pulling guard. Like, if you watch him fight Kato, he's standing up. You watch him fight Kimura, he's standing up. Mm, yeah. When he fought Yasuchiono in 35, he got taken down 30, 32 times. Oh, when shit. he fought him in 36, he got taken down 27 times. Now, if you get taken down 32 times in a fight, what does that say about your strategy in the fight? Well, clearly, you're trying to stand up. You're yeah. not pulling guard. It's the only way you can get taken down 32 times is if you're trying to keep the fight on your feet. Yeah, absolutely. So that's Helio. And that's Helio up to the time he fought Kimura in 51. And you still see that. Like, you still see a guy that's not pulling guard. Or in other words, that orientation towards the ground was not there. It was still very judo-oriented. Yeah. And now you get to 75, and something very interesting happens in 1975. They shift that one-to-one mentality. And they put an emphasis on the ground. So now you're getting four points for mount. You're getting three points for neon belly. You're getting two points for the pass. You're getting two points for the takedown. So now that hierarchy has shifted. It's no longer a uh, even one to one sort of ratio in terms yeah, of points yeah. and rewards. Yeah. 
it is, you know, four to two, right? You have four points for the back. So, like, the, 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 the ratio has changed completely. Like, it's very interesting, though. Why did that happen? Like, what? when did that – because very clearly that ground orientation – yeah, it begins very late in jiu-jitsu history. Yeah. We're talking yeah. seventy-five onwards. I have a question. Now, uh, I, I have a question yeah, uh, when it comes to like, uh, why do they reward so uh, so little points for a takedown? Because takedown is not easy to get, so they should like reward, for example, like four four points at least for a takedown. So I don't understand why you get so little points from the takedown. It's it's a lot of effort. Yeah, it's, it's but but that's a matter of interpretation, right? So they they used to reward up to sixty-seven. When they founded the first federation, they used to reward one to one, right? That changes in '75. So their interpretation of what jujitsu was was undergoing change. By '75, yeah. they they, for example, in '54, they're they're rewarding 30 seconds of control with one point. Mm -hmm. By 1975, 30 seconds of control is called stalling, and you're penalized, like you are today. So that's very interesting. Now in '54. If hmm. you can hold someone down for 30 seconds, you are given one point. Huh. Interesting. Five, 20 years later, if you hold someone down for 30 seconds, you're penalized. Interesting. So, very interesting, because you can see their interpretation of what efficient ground combat was changed completely, right? Now, yeah. I can't prove this, right? This is speculation on my part, but of course. I think it had something to do with Carlson Gracie. Because if you, if, if you, if you, let's say this for two reasons. First, the dominant force in Rio de Janeiro in 1975 is Carlson Gracie. Carlson is the leading figure in, in jiu-jitsu history in that period. Yeah. Not Carlos, not Julio, Carlson Gracie. His gym is by far the most dominant gym in Rio de Janeiro, not even a close second. Where was Hickson so, back in the, in those days? Who? Hickson. Uh, 75, he would have been fairly young. He was not a dominant force yet. Oh, okay, he's okay. Gonna he's going to be a dominant force in the 80s. Okay, that, all right. That's, that, that's Hickson's uh, era, is, is the 1980s. Okay. Uh, but in 75, Carlson is a dominant force. And the other reason I think this might have something to do with uh, Carlson is that um, if you watch the rule set closely, you know, it, it is very influenced by Valutudo. Valutudo is the old word for MMA. Yeah. Right? And it has what I call the progression paradigm, where you're, you're rewarded points as you ascend, ascending number of points as you progress throughout the sequence of the fight. So again, two points for a takedown, two points for a pass, three points for a neon belly. Later they switched out. Now it's three for the pass, two for a neon belly. But then it was three for the neon belly, two for the pass, four for mount. Now what is it that you're mimicking here when you ascend from two to three points to three from three points to four points? Really, what you're doing is you're creating a hierarchy of you're creating a hierarchy of what are the most important positions in the fight, right? Yeah. And what those positions have that makes them singular is that they're all positions where you could do damage on fight. So if I'm mounting you, I have I'm rewarded four points because four points is stuck. I mean, a mounted position I can do a lot of damage. Yeah, a lot of strikes. So and... Exactly. So the rule is heavily influenced by. By MMA, there's no doubt about it. Of course, now, who's the guy in Rio de Janeiro in the jiu-jitsu circles that had the most experience in MMA? Carlson, Carlson Grace, by far. Yeah. So I can't prove this, and you know, but I think it had something to do with his interpretation or his influence, at least. Uh, but you know, Carlson is a unique figure for a number of different reasons. This is just one of them. You know, like my my 
my hypothesis that he had something to do with this because I don't think it's a coincidence that from 1930s when the the Graces more or less began their divorce with Judo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it took them 45 years, right? 1930 to 1975, 45 years, and there's no orientation towards the ground. 45 years, and you don't see orientation towards the ground. That's a long time. Boom. It's this, like this this fork yeah. in the history of Jiu-Jitsu, and it creates a whole new evolutionary track. Because once you start awarding more points on the ground, what do you think is going to happen? Well, guys are going to specialize on the ground. Of course. So that's when, of course, it's just a matter of... I think that what we call Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right, is something that, you know, the process initiated in the 1930s. But it doesn't really begin to take a clear shape until like 1970s onwards. That's you know, and, and that's I think a bit late. Very significant because I don't think people realize that prior to Carlson Gracie, there were no group classes in jiu-jitsu. These guys did self-defense, private lessons. That's how they taught jiu-jitsu. It was self-defense and privates. Yeah, because okay. Car- Carlson, like, uh, like uh, I've heard you say this earlier, but Carlson, like, uh, revolutionized how you train jiu-jitsu, like to uh, how we do it nowadays. Isn't that right? Completely. Because, you know, to, to we take a group competitive class for granted. We think that's the norm. But what people don't understand is that before Carlson Gracie, these things didn't exist in jiu-jitsu. This mm. is something that started with Carlson. And he, he picked up a fight with his whole family over it, too, because, you know, Helio was very controlling in the sense where he didn't want anyone learning jiu-jitsu that wasn't paid in private lessons or wasn't, wasn't one of his own children or one of his nephews or one of his close associates instructors, right? Yeah. So it was a very close circle. Carlson comes along and says, listen, man, we, we got to create group classes because that's more competitive. We can drop the price that way because we can teach multiple people at once, right? And we got to open up for all social classes. We got to open up for everyone. Mm, it just yeah. needs to grow. And if it's going to grow, we need more competitors. We can't keep this a niche practice amongst our own family and, 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 and people who can afford privates. We need to democratize this. So he begins the process of democratization in jiu-jitsu in the 1970s, and he picks a fight with his whole family because of it, because they saw it as him trying to remove the Gracie family from the center of jiu-jitsu, which is, you know, it was in, in, invariably what was going to happen if you democratize it, which is where we're at today. Like, there's no, the Gracie family does not have a monopoly of jiu-jitsu, which, which comes with good and bad things. Of That's course. part four of the book. If you ever read the rise and evolution, I, there's some lot, lot of bad things that come with the Gracie family's original understanding of what jujitsu uh, uh, was or is being lost, right? Mm. Like it's it's in the hands of the internet these days, and I think that's we were better off when when guys like Carlson and Hollis were in charge. I argue for that in the book. Yeah, but um, you know, in, in general terms, like you know, the, 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 these guys were. Were basically, if they eventually they had to concede that what Carlson was doing was superior. It was a more, it was a better model. So even if they they hated Carlson when he opened it up and they, he took jujitsu away from a family practice and he became it, make it a democratic one. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, they all had to concede that he was right yeah. because his team was a dominant team in Brazil for almost three decades. For almost yeah. three decades, no one could beat Carlson in competition. So these guys eventually go listen. What he's doing is working. We got to start training that way. So jujitsu undergoes a, a very significant uh, a split 
in, in, in this period, right? Like the Helio Gracie model and the Carlson Gracie model. Carlos Gracie Jr. describes it as a civil war inside the family. And I think it's a very apt way to look at it. There really was a civil war of sorts. And these yeah. guys described it's crystal clear that they didn't like each other. They had this rivalry. There's respect. But there was also this rivalry about how jiu-jitsu ought to be taught. When so did the... with Helio in methodological terms, in cultural terms, and in technical terms, yeah. he's completely odds with his uncle. Yeah, I get that. But uh, another question: what, uh, it, It's got to do with the same thing we're talking about. When did uh, when did Carlson like split from the Gracie Academy? Well, he opens his own academy in 1964. Mm -hmm. That's his first academy, and it... that's the split because um, you know. This is coming from one of the members of the Gracie family that didn't want to be quoted. Yeah. Um, but I'm just saying, you know, but basically it's like Helio did not like the fact that Carlson would teach differently. He wanted Carlson to follow the Gracie curriculum, oh, which okay. was a self-defense curriculum. And Carlson wanted to teach how he wanted to teach. And the other... other instructors to beat Carlson, you know, and, uh, and Carlson got tired of having to prove himself in his own every day, and he decided to leave and open his own thing. Yeah, you have to repeat the last thing you said, because you were broke, breaking up, and then you were gone for three seconds, so what did you say before we broke up? Well, you know, uh, Carlson uh, wanted to use his own methodology, he didn't want to follow the original self-defense curriculum, he wanted to create a new methodology for jiu-jitsu, one that was more competitive, more geared towards a real situation, live sparring, competitive rounds. That's yeah. what Carlson wanted to do. Uh, his uncle didn't want him doing it. Helio did not want him outside of the curriculum. He wanted to kind of keep things as as he had always taught, and he didn't like people dissenting from his views, mm -hmm. right? And then yeah. on top of that, and we have a testimony of one member of the Gracie family who did not want to be quoted, but he's saying that Carlson would, I mean, that's what the, the one I just said they want to be quoted. The one I'm quoting now is Carlson Gracie Jr. And he says, man, he got tired of having to prove himself inside his own gym. Like, my dad would show up to the, to, to train at the Gracie Academy, and he like Healy would be training all these guys to be Carlson because he couldn't stand the fact that Carlson would not, like, teach the way he wanted him to teach. On top of that, there's a bit of a jealousy there, Dad. Remember, Valdemar Santana had beaten Helio in 55. Yeah. Carlson comes along and beats him in 56. So he avenges the family, he rescues the family name, because Valdemar Santana became like a hero in Rio de Janeiro after defeating Helio. Who is this right? guy, Valdemar Santana? What is he like a Luta Libre guy? Or what kind of guy is this, well, is this guy? He was a student of the Grace Academy. He was, a, he was a student, he was one of Carlson's training partners. He was one of the guys that you know, was brought up inside the Grace Academy, but he wanted to fight professionally and he wanted to fight in an event that was known to do fixed matches. And Helio was very controlling. He said, no, you're not going to fight in that event. And Valdemar Santana went, well, I'm getting paid. Yeah. And he just said, no, you're not going. And then they had a fall. Oh, shit. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, then and, and then he, Valdemar left. Uh, they decided, like, yeah. yeah, they decided to fight. That was the fight that was over three hours long. That's the infamous fight of Helio fighting Valdemar against Valdemar Enigui for over three hours. Yeah. Valdemar beats him, beats him good, like knocks him out with a soccer kick. And now the, the 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 family's name is in shambles. Like Carlson comes along and rescues that, defeats Valdemar. It's a beautiful fight. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. I will. And, I will. I, and I'm very and I'm very complimentary of of um, of Carlson because, you know, you what you if you watch Carlson fighting in 1956, it's very interesting to watch. 
you see a proto UFC fighter there. You see a guy who's way ahead of his time. You see a guy who's hitting Uchimata's left and right, which is extremely hard to do. Like most good judokas can't do that. You see a guy who is, he's got good leg kicks. He's got fast hands. He's got good head movement. He gets taken down. He stands back up. Like you're watching the, the embryo of what the UFC would be, you know, 50 years later. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think Carlson got the credit for being so ahead of his time. But it's not surprising that when Valetudo comes back in the 90s, Carlson Grace's students are the best fighters in the world at the time. The only people that could put up a fight with Carlson's guys were American wrestlers who were normally outweighing these guys by like 30, 40 pounds. Yeah, you yeah, know, even sense. so these guys are putting up a fight, you know, that's, that's it's just incredible when you think about it. And I think that that had to do with his vision, which was something that was very close to how MMA trainers today train their fighters, which was a very, very advanced for the 1950s. So there's another reason why Carlson is a central figure. So what he, you know, to this future. Yeah, so what yeah. he so what he did is like a blueprint for what you see nowadays. You could call it like that, or it was it was the beginning. I guess it wasn't just him. There were others that had like. There's a picture in the book, you know, Euclides Pereira and Ivan Gomez, which are like two other big names of, the, of that era, and they're exchanging blows inside of fifty fifty. And this is in the nineteen, I want to say, late fifties, early sixties. Oh shit! So it's incredible, man. Yeah, it's it's the. I mean, yeah, inside the fifty fifty, they're exchanging punches. It's, it's very sophisticated, man, for the time. <laughs> Damn. You know, yeah. but the difference is like Carlson created a legacy as a coach and these guys did it. You know, Carlson was not the only fighter with a sophisticated vision, but he is the person that carries this vision into the end of the 20th century, the post Hoyt's Gracie era. Like, so in that sense, these guys were ahead of their time. You know, of course, the world caught on by the late 90s. The world had caught on already. But, you know, that was because I and this is some of my critique of jujitsu is. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu stopped supplying MMA with good fighters, and that had to do with the growth of the sport. As Jiu-Jitsu grew, it no longer needed MMA as a vehicle to promote itself. True. Right? So it stopped. In so in evolutionary terms, Jiu-Jitsu went in a very different track, right? That's like, you know, once again, that's part four of the book, and I'm critical of some of these things. But I think that, you know, Carlson didn't get his credit as a Jiu-Jitsu coach, as a fighter, as a, a, a as a as a revolutionary thinker, as a man certainly ahead of his time, and I just I mean, and on top of that, he's an outstanding human being. This is a guy who taught for free, just never cared about money, never cared about creating a legacy, never bragged about what he did, never marketed himself. He was such a merit orientated individual. Mm -hmm. Like it's hard not to admire someone that does all the work and no talking at a time where you you, you live in a world where everyone talks and no one does. Everyone's marketing, marketing, marketing with, with very little actual achievements. And here comes along a guy who's all achievement and zero marketing. It's like, how can you not look up to this guy? He never cared for money. It was all about jiu-jitsu. It was all about improving the art. It was all about creating the best team in the world. And he did that. Yeah. And the, and, 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 and till this day, he hasn't been touched as far as like the accomplishment he has as a coach. I'm yet to see a team that is dominant for three decades. I mean, they can't teach just the teams that they can't. I mean, certainly the sport has grown a lot, but it's very hard to be dominant in any environment for more than, you know, more than one decade. Yeah, because... And Carlson was the lead in force for three decades. You don't so, have that I, I now. I think he deserves a lot more credit than he gets. Yeah, because you don't have that now. Just the teams now, you don't have that. And the closest that I can think about is probably Alliance, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that's the closest one that I can be, uh, I can think about from... Uh, 
from like that era, but uh, or not from that era, but uh, from a team who's close closer to like the Carlson Gracie. But uh, yeah, I, probably Alliance. I don't know. What do you think? What's the closest? Uh, what what's the closest like uh, team to uh, to uh, to uh, to do uh, to do almost the same thing for uh, as Carlson Gracie like did for three decades? You you don't have it. I think like, you Alliance. Know, Gracie Baja and Alliance have been very successful over the years. Yeah. You know, but and they they're very dominant teams, but now they're disputing. We saw Dream Art wins us last year. Otto has been very dominant. So you have like all this rotation of like new teams that are doing well. But it's very hard for them to dominate for very long periods of time. You know, like it's it's gotten more competitive because there's the 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 the, the, comp- the competition pool has gotten a lot bigger, mm. right? Yeah. But it's it's still like it's still impressive, no matter how, especially because he was a pioneer at doing that. Like today, we're just following what he started. Yeah. Like the way I explain it to people is that Carlson created the recipe. IBJJF created the oven for the cake to grow. So Carlson created the recipe for the cake. It didn't have an oven to grow. The IBJJF became that oven. The UFC became the banner, the billboard, you know, to, to promote that that brand of jiu-jitsu that started inside Carlson's gym. And not just in technical terms, but also in cultural terms. I think it's something that people don't want realize is how important, like, the culture is for the growth of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, I didn't know that Carlson was such like a uh, such a uh, important figure in uh, in the history. I, I I knew about Carlson and stuff like that, but I didn't knew stuff like that. I didn't know. I ne- I never knew that. No one's told me that. Yeah, he's a um, um, it's um, it's something that's not spoken about very often, but it's it's very important. It's very significant, um, and I think that one of the reasons why is that well, Carlson had one son. Like, his father had 21 children, and Helio had nine. Yeah. Helio's children were best positioned to tell their version of event and place Helio as, like, the leading figure in the history of jiu-jitsu. Yeah. When, you know, when you look at the facts as a whole, you know, clearly, like, it, Carl's, Carlson takes a centrality on so many different realms. Like, like he didn't produce champions. You know, like, you can't compare them as coaches. Helio was close-minded. Carlson was open-minded. Like mm. these differences are not—they're very significant for the future of the sport, you know. But I think that because that narrative of placing, like, of not talking about Carlson because he was the black sheep in the family, and because Helio's children were the ones that were best positioned to tell the story in the United States, yeah. Then the narrative, the narrative becomes very distorted. Like people are still kind of repeating what they've been hearing for so long because. The thing about a, a, a repetition is that it doesn't matter if it's true or false. If it's repeated enough, people end up believing it. Of it's course. It's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah, that's true. If it's repeated enough, people will believe it. Yeah. People will definitely believe it. Uh, another guy that I want to talk about, he's he's like, um, like uh, I think he's like uh, late 80s, early 90s. Another guy, you, you, heard, you, you probably heard of this guy, uh, Marcelo Bering. What do you what do you know about him? Yeah, I know more. Hmm. I mean, not personally, but you know, I I know of him. So it, yeah, like, uh, are you gonna well, mention Bering's son? Uh, he was one of uh one of the dominant figures, you know, in the in, in jiu jitsu in the nineteen eighties. Not the only one. He was, but he was one of the better guys. 
he was from uh, the, 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 the Hicksons, the, the Grace Umaita, which later became Grace Umaita. Yeah. It was Gracie Academy at the time. He was Hickson's student. Um, but, you know, like he still lost to Carlson's students. And this is what people don't understand, man. Oh, he did. as dominant as Hickson was, when Hickson went over to train at Carlson's gym, getting ready for his fight with Zulu, yeah. he was getting tapped by purple belts. Oh, shit. And that's not me. That's like that's like members of the Gracie family who were there and other witnesses. Are like, no, no, it's true. Oh, like, shit. Helio lost it. Like, and he slaps Hickson after he lost. He's like, because he, he was so angry that his son, a black belt, would get tapped by a purple belt under Carlson. Oh, shit. Like, he, like, he, the thing, people know these things. It's just that they don't like to talk about it because they're not very, you're not supposed to come and train, right? But I think true. that after Hickson started talking about beating Hollis in practice, he pissed a lot of people off. So a lot of these guys are like, nah. This is what happened. And they're a witness to this. This is not this is not like me, you know, guessing. This is like people that saw it and, and I mean the man, the guy's name is Jose Zazo. He confirms this story. It's uh, an interview on YouTube. It's in Portuguese, but I, I can send it to you later. Yeah. But it just gives you an idea how dominant Carlson's guy was. Like his yeah. purple belts could tap Hicks and Gracie in practice. Man, yeah. that's not insignificant. You know, that's a it's it's not a small feat, but you know, it's and this is all confirmed by the known record as well as testimonies. We're talking, you know, Carlson, his guys winning every single division, every tournament. Like they won all divisions. Like this guy did not lose a division, Shit. you know. And, and 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 but they and they cannot stand it. But they had to concede to his model because it was superior. And that's why to me, I think it's so enraging that people would not give him his due credit. It's like, wait a second, man. This is the guy who did it. Yeah. Have you met died, him? Died, died broke, died broke, died unrecognized, never got the credit he deserved. Not that he wanted it, but, I mean, maybe he did it to some extent. He's human, but he deserved it, man. He did it, you know? And and more than that, I think more importantly, jiu-jitsu needs good references. Yeah. We don't have good references in the art. We have very few good references, I say. <laughs> yeah, that's I true. I think did an outstanding reference. Did you met him? I met him once briefly. I took a picture with him, but I would, you know, I was just, it was just a picture when I was like 17 years old. It would be so much fun if he was still alive and told his story. That would be so much fun to listen to. Like if you got him in your documentary, if he, still, if he was still alive. Absolutely, man. Like this is something that, uh, you know, we would, I mean, if he's still alive, we'd love to have a chat with him. But from all accounts, man, he was just a cool dude. Yeah. He was just like a bro, like simple, never bragged. Got never, never wanted special treatment, treated everyone well. He was just like an outstanding human. Like, we're talking a guy that would literally take the shirt off his back to give it to strangers, you know, like mm -hmm. that, you know, that kind of guy, you know. And, and on top of that, no, arguably the best coach in the history of MMA and Jiu Jitsu. I don't think there's anyone who's produced as many dominant guys as he did. You know, and so many good guys it, came from that yes, gym too. So many good guys, man. Like, and if you look at the most dominant jiu-jitsu fighters in the history of MMA, like ninety percent of them come out of Carlson's gym. One guy, man, it's one yeah, coach. Yeah, one all champions. We're talking UFC champions. We're talking Pride champions. Yeah, man, we're talking like across the board, and one gym did all that. It's remarkable. Yeah. So, like, uh, another thing. Um, so, Hickson's guys used to, like, come to uh, come to Carlson's gym to train, to, to train, or were there, like, uh, rivalry there in that, uh, in, that uh, in that thing? Well, Hickson was, like, when he fought Zulu the first time, he, he, yeah, there, there was rivalry, but it was still, you got to remember, like, Hickson trained with Hollis, right? So, he would visit, he would train with Hollis, and Hollis shared a building with Carlson. 
Yeah. So it was probably Carl, you know, Hollis making a connection there for Hickson Train. But, you know, these guys all, all Hickson trained with Hollis. Hickson got good training with Hollis. You don't get good unless you're trained with tough competition. And Hollis was a guy who came up under Carlson as well. That's yeah. another thing we want to talk about. I didn't know that. You know? Oh, man, of course. Like, how do you get You think you can get good doing private lessons? You think you can get good do, like doing like self defense classes? How are you going to win tournaments that way? <laughs> not impossible. Not, not possible. Well, Hollis was not. He was not dominant guy before Carlson. He became a dominant guy after he started training with Carlson. But no one wants to say this because you're picking a fight that people don't want to pick. I have members of the Gracie family saying this. It's true. Oh shit. Carlson. Hollis became Hollis after Carlson. Like I'm not going to mention names. No, no. Like, of course this not. This is an off. They, they, no, they actually. This was in the interview. This one particular individual later, he saw the, the interview. He asked me to remove it, but he basically said when when Hollis started training with Carlson, he was getting tapped by brown belts. Oh shit! You know, and it's it's not it's not it's not on tack of the guy. Like the guy was doing private lessons, man. Like he's not training competitively. Carlson had a gym with 40, 50 animals on the mats every day trying to kill each other. Yeah, like who do you think is going to win? You know, it's not it's yeah. not rocket science. Yeah, but he started Carlson later to become partners. And then Paulus becomes the most dominant guy in Brazil. As Carlson aged, he came to replace Carlson as a dominant, you know, grappler in Brazil. Yeah. But Hickson, Hickson came from that tradition of training with Hollis, you know. And it's, yeah. I mean, obviously, how, how else do you get good other than training with guys that are good? That's and true. Hollis was the best guy to train at the time. So yeah. by the time he's fighting Zulu, he's, you know, looking for training partners, looking for tough guys to train with. And you know, he visited Carlson's gym and, you know, a lot of good guys there, man. Like people don't understand. <laughs> the best fighters in Brazil at the time were inside Carlson's gym. Mm. What? Uh, another question I have. Uh, when did the like Hollis uh, start to like cross train with Greco-Roman guys or like wrestlers in general? Well, that's an old tradition. I think Hollis got a lot of credit for that, but he's not the only one to do that. Um, it goes way back. Like you know, you know, Helio cross train with Capoeira guys. Uh, George Gracie cross trained with cash wrestlers. Mm. Um, uh, Carlson had a really good relationship with Georges Medi, which is like a judoka. So you know he cross trained with him. Yeah. So there's just these things that always happen, right? The, the Hollis sort of became famous for that because of the the episode with Bob Anderson, right? So that became sort of like I interviewed Bob Anderson for the book, by the way. But that episode made it seem like it was something unique, but it was not unusual for these guys to cross train with other styles. Uh, that was that was the norm. In fact, inside the great, even inside the Gracie Academy, we know that Helio cross trained with catch wrestlers and capoeiras. Yeah. So these like things were not unusual in those days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I I thought it was like something taboo since since he was like I I, I read someplace that it was very taboo of him to do that and go and train with other martial arts and stuff like that. It was not like very accepted. I don't know if it's true or not, but probably it's not. If it was. Yeah. The what part? No, I I read some place. I I don't remember if I I don't remember correctly, but I I think like most guys of the family didn't like that he was training at other martial arts uh, like judo. Well, and, Helio and didn't like that. Helio, you know, Helio himself had done it in his youth. He didn't like people training outside his gym and outside his own methodology, yeah. which is you know, some degree understandable. Uh, but I think Hollis was a guy open minded enough. He wanted to expand and he wanted new techniques and learn new things and. I think he saw the potential Jiu-Jitsu had, and it was a, it was untapped potential. Right, yeah. it was untapped yeah. potential. And he he just wanted to expand, grow, outgrow what was available to him at the time, and 
you know, I just, I think it's, it's important. This is not unique. Helio had done it. Jordan had done it. Carlson had done it. Yeah. Guys outside the Gracie family did it too. I'm sure this was, people didn't have instructionals. They didn't have internet. If you wanted, they had like a few books here and there, but if you wanted to be good at something, you want to exchange information, you had to be, you know, do it in person. Yeah. Of course. Uh, George Gracie, well, what's, uh, he's also a guy that someone does not speak uh, too much about. I've heard a little bit about him, but uh, can you like give a quick introduction about him? Well, just to give an idea, the very the first MMA match in modern history was arguably George Gracie. He was, you know, one of the one of the fighters. Like, this is the guy, he was the original, you know, hero of the family. He's the guy that Carlos promoted initially. Uh, but he has a fall. Wow, with the family, he began like Carlson. He becomes a black sheep, and once you become a black sheep, there they cancel you, man. Like you, you know. So you, people didn't hear about George Grace until recently. Yeah, it was only when they digitized the the, the files of the, the the National Library in Brazil that you know people are going over these files, and this guy keeps popping up over and over and over. And that's what people are like. Wait a second, this guy was the best fighter of the family in his era. You know, like I mean, he I mean, if he fought. Some of the best fighters in all sorts of different rule sets. He was very active. Did a lot of fake matches too, but he was a very active fighter. So he never got his credit. He didn't leave a long lasting lineage. He still has lineages in Brazil, but they're not, um, they're not very, you know, they didn't become as dominant as the ones that, you know, the, the rest of the family would spread, which became the most dominant lineages in Brazil. But there are still George Gracie lineages in Brazil, you know, okay. so he, he had his impact and spread in jiu jitsu. In the countryside, especially in the north of Brazil, in the south of Brazil, in the Sao Paulo region, one of my coaches in Brazil had been a, his father had been a student of George Gracie. So there's there's a, there's an important story uh, role that, that George played in, in spreading jiu-jitsu across Brazil. Okay, but he was always like you know kind of at odds with his family. Like he was never you know he was on board and wasn't on board with the family. He's described as a rebel by that's 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 the word that everyone was like every member of the Gracie family the word rebel to describe him. And he didn't have, you know, children that could... Yeah, uh, do you have possible to do five more minutes? Like, uh, that's all... Five more minutes. I just want to get get to wrap up the George Gracie stuff. And after that, we're uh, we're good. So... Okay. But yeah, uh, you were saying George Gracie didn't have any children and uh, but he was an active fighter and yeah, one more. Well, and that, that was it. He's, he was, you know, sort of forgotten because he didn't leave a long-lasting legacy of multiple students. But in an initial moment, he's very significant, you know, and, and um, he was a very dominant. He was one of the leading fighters in Brazil at the time. And he, you know, he was he was the kind of guy to fight anyone, anytime, anywhere, any rule set. He fought in wrestling rules, man. Like, the guy was just, like, oh, he reminds me kind of like, yeah, like 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 a guy like Henzo, you know, it was like Genzo will literally fight anyone, anytime, anywhere. He's like just one of those guys, you know. Oh, like yeah. didn't yeah. really pick and choose about rules, opponents, uniforms, like no, you wanna fight, let's go. Yeah. You know, he's yeah, he, he plays a significant role in initially in the nineteen thirties and forties in Brazil. And the the night that And what? He was very significant spreading jiu jitsu then. You were saying, uh, repeat yeah. the last thing you said. You 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 fall out again. Like, uh, what did you say? He he did what? Well, he was he was very significant in spreading jujitsu in the countries outside of Rio de Janeiro. Mm, you know, okay. that's something that you know he didn't get the recognition for. But I I think he you know 
he was he was very significant in helping spread jiu-jitsu outside of Rio. So when the, the national level tournament started in the 90s, you get all these guys showing up, and people in Rio didn't even know that they had jiu-jitsu in some of these places in Brazil. They're popping out out of like out of nowhere. Like, oh, I didn't even know we had jiu-jitsu there. But these were like, you know, people that trained, had trained under George, you know, way back in the day. Yeah. What's the name of the... Uh... Ah, uh, he, he he died not long ago, like maybe a year ago or something. Uh, uh, one of the masters that you visited, uh, old guy with a with a cane and uh, and a long beard. Oh, Armando. Yes. Armando read it. Yes. Yeah. What's uh, can you give me like a quick uh, quick thing about him? Like, what what's his story? Is he? Yeah. Uh, he was a student from the Gracie Academy. He was one of uh, Helio's students, the first generation, right? What I call the first wave of practitioners. Uh, he opens his own gym in Rio after a while. Yeah, he was actively teaching. You know, he didn't. He didn't like MMA. He didn't like Valetudo. He just liked to teach. He's a very simple guy, very kind, very you know, um, not a you know, certainly very far from like some an egomaniac. Just a very simple person who loved to teach. It got a lot to say. Very sincere. Like I think his interview like brought a lot of attention. The people who read the book really liked his interview because you know he was so sincere with talking about. He wasn't political at all. Oh. He was just like, I'll see how it is, and not really concerned with you know, flattery people or you know, distorting things because of allegiances. Like he was at one point, he's criticizing Helio's self defense book. Like he's pointed out how Helio's doing things all wrong. You know, like he's oh, that shit. kind of guy. He's just very <laughs> sincere, but not like you know, not, <laughs> he didn't say it in a demeaning way or an aggressive way. It was more like, no, he used to teach this differently back in the academy, sort of thing. You know. But not really, not very political. I think that's one reason why people liked him. Mm, okay, I get that. Another another thing, like uh, quick quick thing too. Uh, like uh, um, the guys that uh, that they're online from the outside, real like Mayor, like the GF team guys and stuff like that. Like, um, did Maeda go there, or was another Japanese guy who w- went out there to teach those guys, like Munir Salmo, and those guys, like Julio Cesar's teachers? What, what, what guys? What are you talking about? Uh, the guys for the the, the GF team lineage. Like um, Julio oh, Cesar. No, that's that's, uh, that's all. That's all Safada lineage. Yeah, yeah. Finally, just come after Luis Franza. Luis Franza was a student from the Gracie Academy. The the father lineage is the Gracie lineage. It's it's a myth that they're outside of the Gracie family. Yeah, it's but not true. Uh, it's uh, Luis Franza was a student of the Gracie Academy. Now he might have trained with other people, but the evidence we have points to the Gracie Academy. So he uh, just he split from the Academy, the Gracie Academy, and did his own thing. Well, I mean, everyone started, you know, teaching. Like, people did that. Like, they trained, and then they opened, they opened their own places eventually, you know. Like, not everyone wants to be a student forever. Some people want to teach. So he, he starts teaching in the in the Navy in Brazil, and one of his students is Osvaldo Fada. And Osvaldo Fada opens a, a gym in the, the suburbs of Rio de Janeiro, mm-hmm. and he becomes, like, one of the few gyms in the 1950s and 60s that would offer some resistance to the Gracie Academy. You know, they needed rivals. And the FADA in an initial moment was the academy that offered that offered that 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 resistance. You know, they, 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 they never became a dominant lineage in Brazil, but they're still there. They're still active. GF team is the most known branch from that that lineage. Uh but there are others. Yeah. Yeah. Uh which 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 others do you have like in in that like <laughs> some, some smaller gyms in, in brazil like i wouldn't even call them like, no big team that comes to mind yeah uh i know there's 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 um 
there's a guy in Niterói called Munir. Munir was actually the coach for Julius Caesar, who's GM. Yeah. Uh, and there's like Jean Hezengi, we interviewed him for the book. Elio Fada, he's still actively teaching at the Fada Academy in Rio, which is in the same building since 1947. Oh, That's shit. That's an interesting fact. They've been in the same building for over half a century, like 60 years, now 70 years, yeah. Yeah. Munir Salmo, he, yeah. still, he's, he still lives on. Or he, he is he still alive or? Who? Munir Salmo, uh, Julius Cesar's teacher. Oh, Munir. Munir, yeah. no, I think he's dead. I think he's passed. I'm not sure. Okay. That's a good question. But okay. No, yeah. All right. All right. Uh, interesting anyway. But yeah, we have six minutes now. So uh, like I'm I'm happy with what I've got. And uh, like if you want to add more, I'm I'm happy to listen. I, I, I love this. So much fun. All right, man. I, I, I'm glad you had fun, brother. Yeah, I'll put it out and I'll tag you in it. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. This was uh, it was a pleasure. So, so much fun to listen to. And I'm uh, I'm going to buy the book. I'm gonna buy the first one, then I'm gonna buy the next one. So uh, when does? I, I hope you enjoy. It. Yeah, when, when does the documentary come out? Uh, we had a legal issue. It's been solved. We're back into production. I'm hoping before the end of the year. Oh, nice! Yeah, I can't wait for that either. Yeah, well, it will be out soon, man. It's just there's a lot of hiccups, man. There's a lot more work than I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah, it happens, you know. It happens, but yeah, uh, I'm a pay. Uh, by the way, before 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 we go, have you seen the Teddy movie? I haven't yet, man. Believe it or not. Oh shit! Yeah, because he was like your old teacher before, right? <laughs> yes, I honestly, I don't, I don't watch TV. I'm never on Netflix or anything like that. But I, I, I do need to watch that one. It's, it's the next thing I'm watching. Yeah, I recommend it. It's good. It's a nice story. Um, yeah, man. It sounds like it. It's a lot of people who watched it seem to enjoy it. Yeah, definitely, definitely, man. But yeah, definitely, I highly recommend it. So uh, yeah, let, let me know what, what you think. Will do. All right. Take care, man. All right. Later, brother. Later. Bye. Bye.